Hey, good evening, guys. If you would uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk. Psalm 10 that, that Andrew is saying to us, perfect introduction, just a, a beautiful example, a perfect example of what it, what it looks like to cry out for God's wrath, for, to cry out for God's judgment uh, so that those who are being afflicted, those who are being oppressed, who are victims of injustice uh, might be delivered and, and not continue to know that oppression of evil. And, uh, you know, tonight in Habakkuk chapter 3, we're going to see Habakkuk praying for God's wrath. We're going to see him praying for, for God's wrath and God's judgment. And, and for us um, who have, that may, feel, that may feel uncomfortable for some of us. Um, you know, particularly if we've grown up in, in, in comfortable lives, um, we haven't known a lot of injustice and oppression ourselves. It may, it may feel a little off-putting to think of the God who is love as a God of wrath. But, but just imagine you've grown up in, in war-torn Syria uh, for the past decade. Uh, it makes perfect sense for you to be crying out for God to do something about that, for God to stop evil. And so let's read um, Habakkuk chapter 3. We'll, we'll start with just verses 1 and 2 and then ask for the Lord's help. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. I have no idea if I'm saying that correctly, but um, Shigianoth, I think, was a type of song. This was a prayer that was put to music. Uh, it was a, they think it was a, a lament, a type of a lament. And so he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. In your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Let's pray. Father God, we ask um, that you that we could sit at your feet as your children and that you would teach us. You would teach us to obey all of Jesus' commandments. And would you make us like him? Would you shape our prayers to be like his? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So, main idea of this passage, main idea of the sermon is that Habakkuk prays for a revival of God's work, namely his wrath, but with mercy. Habakkuk here prays for a revival of God's work, namely his wrath, but with mercy. And so let's, let's continue reading. We'll, we'll read from uh, chapter 3, I'm sorry, verses 3 through 15 and make some observations about God's wrath here. You'll see a lot of, um, as we read it, you'll see a lot of exodus, um, a lot of, excuse me, let me slow down. You'll see a lot of imagery here from the book of Exodus, which is another example of, of God bringing wrath on evil oppressors, and as he does so, he delivers his people. He delivers the Israelites. And so that's what Habakkuk is praying for here. Bring wrath, but, but in so doing, show mercy. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, which is where Israel spent some of its wilderness wanderings. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. 
I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed, and rage, the raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Let's make a few observations about God's wrath here. First one being that God is the sovereign creator who is involved in his creation, which includes people in nature, and he directs them as he pleases. God is the sovereign creator. God has created the world. He exists apart from the world, separate from the world. He is not part of creation. He is the creator. We are creation. He, that's what, one thing that makes him holy and different from us is that he is creator. We are creation. And yet, though he is um, creator who stands above it all and over it all, he is intimately involved in his creation. He, he did not make the world like a clock, um, designing it beautifully, and then just let it tick and do its own thing and, and step back and not be involved. That's what you call deism. Um, but he is both completely separate from his creation and in love, intimately involved in it. Uh, Pastor Douglas Wilson gives, a, I think, a very helpful example for understanding this. Uh, as, as you think about... Shakespeare writing the play Hamlet. Hamlet says, to be or not to be? That is the question. Now, let me give you this question. Whose words were those? Were those Hamlet's words or Shakespeare's words? They're both, right? What percentage? Were they maybe 30% Hamlet and 70% Shakespeare? No, they're 100% Hamlet's and 100% Shakespeare's. And so... Um, Shakespeare is directing that play, he is, he is directing Hamlet, but on a, um, on a much more grand level, on a, on a 3D level. You know, we are free actors, we have free will, the Babylonians are freely choosing evil here, but God, uh, as the author who is, who is separate from the creation, but also involved in it, he is directing the Babylonians. He directs his creation as he pleases to accomplish his purposes. To give you some examples to illustrate that here uh, through this beautiful imagery in verses 3 through 15, we see that pestilence and plague are under the command of God, that God is sovereign over disease. That should, that should be good news for someone. We see that the, it says here that the eternal mountains are as nothing to him. He is a creator. He can, it doesn't matter how strong the forces, how strong the political forces are, 
the cultural forces, it does not matter. He, the eternal mountains are laid bare by him. We see God parting the Red Sea. We see God making the sun to stand, to stand still as when the account of, of Joshua fighting the Canaanites. And he does all of this. He directs his creation, all of it, all to accomplish his purposes, his good purposes. Second observation about God's wrath here. God in love shows wrath out of anger at evil. God in love shows wrath out of anger at evil. Why say, why, why, why is it, do I feel like it's important to add in love here? Because love is God's eternal nature. Love is God's eternal nature. There are, there are two realities, one theologian says, I, I, I can't remember his name, but um, two realities, there's God's reality and our reality. Our, God exists, again, outside of our reality. Our reality has a definite starting point where he says, let there be light, and history begins. But God is eternal. And he exists outside of our reality, in his own reality. And so what then was God doing before he created the world? What was God like before he created the world? Well, God the Father was loving his Son. And God the Son was adoring and loving his Father. And the spirit of love existed between them. God is one being who is three persons. There is community inherent in his nature, and it is his nature to love. That is his nature. And so that's why theologian Michael Reeves says that God's anger at evil, which begins in, in Genesis chapter 3 at, when, when the first sin happens, that God's anger at evil from Genesis 3 onward then is a new thing. It is how the God who is love responds to evil. God's anger and wrath is how the God who is love responds to evil. God's wrath is a good thing. Another theologian uh, from Croatia, from the former Yugoslavia, his name is Miroslav Volf. He said he, um, he used to think that wrath was just unworthy of God. How can we talk about a God of, of wrath and a God of anger uh, when we, we know that God is love? Isn't that kind of... Um, you know, shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? But he writes this. He says, God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. And that's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. Mr. Volf said he, um, in the former Yugoslavia, that 200,000 of his people were executed in ethnic cleansing. And three million more were displaced. He says, my villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. And some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. God is patient in withholding his wrath, desiring that all would come to repentance. But God, in love, will one day destroy all evil. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Third observation, God in love shows wrath for the salvation of his people. He shows wrath for the salvation of his people. Let me give you some examples. I already referred to the Exodus when God judged 
the wicked Egyptians who were, who were deserving of that judgment. But what did that mean for his people? Deliverance. Salvation. God brought judgment and wrath against the wicked Canaanites. But what did that mean for his people? Deliverance. Salvation. Deliverance into the promised land. When God brought, when, when God brings judgment on the Babylonians here, what will it mean for his people? Deliverance. Salvation. And when God brings wrath on the devil and all sin in the last judgment to come, what will, mean, what will that mean for us, his people? Deliverance. Eternal salvation. But what about my sin? What about our sin? Because if God in love judges all evil, where, what, what does that mean for me? Am I not guilty and deserving as well? But notice here in verse 13, it says, You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Now, when he's saying for the salvation of your anointed, he could just be referring to his people again, but, but also we know that normally when you, when you see the phrase the anointed in Scripture, that it's referring to the anointed one, to the Messiah, to the Christ, to to the promised coming king, Jesus. And so, what, what could it mean that he's, he, he went out for the salvation of his anointed one, of the Messiah? Look at the next part of verse 13. It says, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. If you know scripture, if you know Genesis 3, what does that sound like? Yeah, the euangelion, which is a big fancy word for saying the first prophecy of the gospel. The first announcement of the good news that, that though we are guilty of sin, that we deserve judgment, that one day God was going to send the Messiah, the anointed one, who would crush the head of the serpent, while at the same time having his heel bitten and suffering himself a mortal death. So then how can God be faithful to justice and show wrath against our sin and show us mercy? Because God brought judgment down on our Messiah. He brought judgment down on the anointed. So that we being in him as the, uh, the anointed in him, so that we being in him might be shown mercy. God poured judgment out on Christ who absorbed it all. He paid it all so that on the third day when he rose again, we being in him might be delivered with him. That we might be resurrected, saved, delivered with him, in him. God shows wrath for the salvation of his people. Next observation. I love this one. I get really giddy over this. God throws all the designs of evil back in Satan's face, frustrating Satan by causing Satan's evil designs to work for God's good purposes. He throws all the designs of evil back in Satan's face, frustrating Satan by causing Satan's evil designs to work for God's good purposes. Look at verse 14, plain as day. It says, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. 
Is this not what happens in the story of Job that we just, that we just saw? That we see at the beginning of Job that um, Satan wants to basically destroy Job and cause him to curse God and to fall away from God. And what happens? Job comes to know God on a deeper level. Job repents. Job, it all works for Job's good, and, and he, he knows the Lord on a, on a, in a deeper way and is blessed through it. Is this not hap- what happens at the cross? The cross, the ultimate weapon of destruction for the, for the Romans, a, t- a weapon of execution, becomes there a tool of blessing, an instrument of deliverance. Satan's plans frustrated. His evil designs working for God's good purposes. I want us, church, to have that same confidence about whatever's going on in your life right now, about what's going on in our world. Genesis 50.20 says it, You meant it as evil against me, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. He is doing something good, not only in our lives, as, as he promises in Romans 8, 28, to work all things for the good of those who love the Lord, make us like Christ. He's not only doing something good in our lives, but also for the saving of many lives. He is saving his elect through this. We should rejoice. We should be excited. We should have hope over that. Next observation, last observation. God brings wrath for the discipline of his people. He brings wrath for the discipline of his people, testing our hearts and leading us back to him in repentance. I didn't give a verse reference for you for this in your listening guide because basically you, you see it throughout the whole book. You see it in the beginning that, that Habakkuk is protesting God's rule, that he's, he's, he doesn't like the way that, that God is ruling. Um, God basically shows up, shows him his sovereignty, says, I'm doing a work that you wouldn't believe even if I told you. He's, he's still not comfortable with that, but, he's, but God says the righteous should live by faith. And we see here in, in Habakkuk, we see a model. We'll see it in just a moment, a model of him living by faith. And we see Habakkuk grow. We see him at the beginning protesting God's rule, not liking how he's doing it, to here inviting God's rule, even though it's going to cost him personally even though it's going to cost him in the temporal sense, and he's afraid of it. He invites God to reign. When we think about, um, well, let's go forward. Let's read now for, um, we'll read the rest of the passage almost. We'll pick up in, in verse 16 and see um, Habakkuk as a, as a model of living by faith. He says, I hear And my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Referring to this prophecy of God's wrath. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the Lord. Excuse me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. 
Habakkuk is a model of, of living by faith. The first, first way is that he invites God to reign, as I've already said. He invites God to reign, bringing judgment and mercy, even though it's going to cost him, even though it's uncomfortable, even though he's afraid of it. Even though he trembles over it, he invites God to take charge. Second way that he models living by faith for us is that he waits quietly for God's vengeance. He waits quietly for vengeance. Romans 12, God commands us, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. We are not to take vengeance into our own hands. We're, we're not to avenge ourselves, not to uh, try to be God's executor, God's avenger. But to the contrary, this is what we are to do. Verse 20 of Romans 12, it says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals in his head, awakening him to his sin. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I don't know that, um, I don't think Romans 12 is, is being literal here, um, but I do, I would challenge you to take this literally. That if you know someone, uh, if you are friends with someone who is an enemy to the gospel, who opposes the gospel, if they are a Marxist revolutionary, an LGBTQ activist, or if they are opposing God's work in any way, invite them over for dinner. Build a relationship with them. Feed your enemy. Listen to their pain. Be a friend. Show them hospitality. And I think that's what it means to wait for God's vengeance. We are to take the attitude of Christ and to be Christ-like in, in how we love our enemies, trusting that God will sort it all out in the end. For me personally, um, I've just been struggling watching the news. Um, I uh, wondered whether to, to speak into this or not. I didn't do it in the first service. I've just been uh, wrestling with it all week. But um, I've been particularly angry just seeing, at, seeing what I um, feel are activists taking advantage of real pain that people are experiencing and then seeking to accomplish evil purposes with it. That's something that the devil has been doing as far back at least as, as, as Joseph's brothers, as, as Absalom, taking real pain and seeking to accomplish evil purposes with it. And let me, let me say to us, church, that black lives matter. All lives matter. All black lives matter. But the Black Lives Matter organization is... Um, you can. I, I was just watching one of the uh, an interview from one of their founders, one of their leaders. Uh, basically, their ideology is Marxism, and 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 you don't need to know what Marxism. I would encourage you to look it up, but, but basically, just wanting to violently overthrow society as we know it, and um, and it's very scary. It's very angering to see people taking advantage of their pain, taking advantage of to see people being lied to. And as I, but I felt like my challenge from the Lord was to wait quietly for vengeance to not sit in anger, 
but, to, but as God says in Matthew 5, he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who are an enemy to, to the gospel. And so uh, this, after I watched this, um, Patrice Cullors, one of the founders, uh, her describing this, uh, their ideology, I just spent, I needed to spend some time praying for her. And praying for, um, I don't remember their, their full names, but Opal and, and Alicia, two other of their founders, just spent some time praying for them, praying for some government officials that I feel like are taking advantage of things, praying for the media. I just needed to pray because I was angry. And, um, and that is our call, is to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute them, to show them Christ-likeness, to, to eat dinner with them, to be a friend to sinners, and trust God for vengeance on the unrepentant. Our hope is, is like the Lord's, that they would repent, that they would turn, that they would turn to Christ and know his mercy. The, um, the third thing, the third way that we see Habakkuk uh, modeling, living by faith, is that he counts God worthy. He counts God worthy. He says, basically in verse 17, that whatever hardship comes, as a result of, of all that you're doing in the world, whatever hardship comes, you are worth it. You are worth it. The way I think of this a lot is, is to worship is to say, God, you are worth it. To worship is to say, God, to say from the heart, God, you are worth it. You are worth it. And I, um, I will rejoice in you. I will praise you. You are worth whatever you call me to. And rejoice here. You see, he said, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. His rejoicing is not a mere emotional response. Rejoicing, that word in Scripture, it implies work. It implies a, a meditating on the law of the Lord, a meditating on who God is and, and what his purposes is or what his promises are, meditating on who God is and letting that lead us into praise over, as we remember who he is. Next, it's, um, next way that Habakkuk models for us living by faith is that he expects God's future grace to meet his future needs. He expects God's future grace to meet his future needs. He says in verse 19, he says, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And Habakkuk, he was... He lived in, in, in a mountainous region, and so he, it would have been, um, he would have known what it, what it looked like to see the feet of a deer or the feet of a mountain goat jumping from one cliff to the next. It's really amazing if you've seen it on YouTube or in, even better in person. Um, but just if you look at their feet, I don't really understand how it is, but some, something special about their feet makes them able to tread on those high places and, and jump around like they do, and he's, Habakkuk is basically saying, in other words, like, whatever heights you call me to, Lord, you will make my feet able to walk upon them. Whatever you call me to, whatever suffering you call me to, to endure, you will help me to endure. You will, as the song still says, um, um, the oceans rise and thunders roar, yet I will soar with you above the storm. This is what uh, Dr. Ed Welch, a count, biblical counselor, what he calls the manna principle, to, to switch up the metaphors here. You know, manna in the Old Testament, they were to um, trust God to give them their food on the day of, except on the Sabbath. 
but trust them to give them their food on the day of. And they weren't supposed to store up extra. Uh, they weren't supposed to plot and plan for tomorrow because that's basically what anxiety is, right? You, see a, you perceive a threat coming and you, do, you muscle up all your energy, all your internal energy to, to protect yourself from whatever that threat is. But God commands us not to be anxious, but to trust him to give us what we need when we need it. And in the New Testament, grace is the New Testament equivalent to manna. Grace is that New Testament equivalent. I think that's what Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 6 when he prays, give us this day our daily bread. Give us today the manna of grace that we need for the troubles that are coming today. And he says later in in Matthew 6, he says, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You don't need to be God. You don't need to plan for the troubles of tomorrow, that I will meet you there, and I will show you grace, and I I will lift you up. I will make your feet like the deer's, and I will uphold you there. I was asking God for a, um, a, to teach me this personally, to give me a, a personal example of it. And um, you got to be careful sometimes what you, what you ask the Lord for. Um, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but um, the night that my nephew, baby Ezra, was born, it was, there was some real fear of, um, you know, my sister's liver and kidney levels were elevated, and so they needed to get that baby out, but her platelets were low, and so there was a risk of, of hemorrhage, and it was, it was scary. And as we were sitting, in, we couldn't go into the waiting room, so we had to sit in, in my, uh, my mom's SUV in the parking lot. They just got back from the beach. It's loaded down with, uh, with uh, all their, their, their luggage, and so we're squirming in there, and and we're just waiting, and there was a temptation to say, to look at the past and say, what if we had done this differently? My parents were saying, what if, you know, we shouldn't have gone to the beach, or we were just saying, what, what if, you know, we should have told Christy to go to the doctor earlier? And then there was a temptation to think about the what ifs in the future, like, what if the unthinkable happens? But I felt like my marching orders from the king that night were, praise me now. Praise me as the king who is in charge right now. He who, uh, whose mind is kept on you, uh, is, he whose mind is stayed on you is kept in perfect peace. A verse in Isaiah says. He whose mind is stayed on you is kept in perfect peace. And God just kept reminding me in that verse, and I felt like that was my calling personally, and that was my calling to my family, was to just praise the Lord and to trust him to remember who he he was, to rejoice in him, to dwell in his goodness right there in that moment. And praise the Lord, he showed himself as king and he brought deliverance, literally. (laughs) Amen. Makes my feet as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. Final way that Habakkuk models for us what it means to live by faith. The end of verse 19 that that I didn't read, but... You'll notice it, it ends saying, to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is Habakkuk's personal prayer, but it's also a corporate song. This is a song that he sang with God's people. Habakkuk doesn't fight alone. 
but battles alongside God's people. Habakkuk here doesn't fight alone, but battles alongside God's people. And that's what it means for us to live by faith. It's not a, an individual struggle. It's a, it's a corporate struggle. Um, this was a, the Shigianoth, I told you, was a, a song of lament. Habakkuk is struggling here, but he invites others into that struggle. Habakkuk here is singing praises in victory, and he is rejoicing with his brothers and sisters in victory. Looking ahead at God's promises, he is in hope with his brothers and sisters, dwelling on, on God's goodness and what he's going to do, and they are walking in that hope together. And that is God's pattern in Scripture as as. Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat as his army, as his people, as Jerusalem was threatened, surrounded by an enemy army, uh, the, the brilliant battle plan that God gave them was to assemble a choir of singers and to march forth singing and praising God. And in their singing and praising God, God took care of their enemies. We see Paul and Silas as they are persecuted, as they are thrown in prison in in the book of Acts. We see them singing, and it is God who delivers them out of that prison and saves lives through that. We are not to fight alone, but to battle alongside God's people in praise. And so as the book closes, the book of Habakkuk gives us two choices. If we can go back to um, chapter 2, verses, verses 4 and 5, here's, here's the two choices that, we'll, that we'll, we're left with, and we'll sum up the book with this. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him. So you can be arrogant, um, unrighteous, but the righteous shall live by faith, or you can live by faith. And then moreover, he, he explains that first choice some more, he says, Moreover, wine is a traitor. Apparently, King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians had a drinking problem. You see you know, more of that in chapter 2, just talking about drunkenness. And, and apparently, uh, as I observe it, it seems like it was such a problem for him that it kind of personified who he was. And it says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. As an unrighteous one, not living by faith, he is arrogant, he is restless, he is discontent and greedy, and he, is, he violently oppresses others, thinking over only of himself. And so let me, let me ask us tonight, are you restless? Are you discontent? Do you fear tomorrow? And are you unrighteously trying to be your own God and and take care of yourself? Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. We're not orphans anymore. We don't have to take care of ourselves. But in your focus on self, have you neglected and even overlooked others and their needs? Are you insisting on being your own ruler? The other choice is is living by faith. Living by faith in God's promises and and in who he is. Trusting that God will do what he said. Trusting that that the evil will reap what they've sown. And that God's glory will, will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. That God's kingdom will advance 
that, that there will be shalom and, and harmony in the earth again. That God will make a new heavens and a new earth and we will dwell with him in peace for all eternity. Peace and rejoicing. To live by faith is to submit to this king. To trust in his ways and to walk with him to live according to his ways. But how do you know that you can trust God to be your king? How can you trust him to be, how do you know that you can trust him to be in charge of every area of your life? How do you know that it is good that he reigns? How do you know that he is worth waiting on? And how do you know that he can be trusted to be there for us when we need him to be? Because this king is a king who died for us. This king is a king who left the throne of heaven, the comforts of heaven, to be a friend of sinners, to take the wrath that we deserve for our sins into himself, fully paying it all so that he could show us mercy. Let's pray. God, would you, would you help us as we make that choice? As we make that choice every day, you call us you know, as disciples. You said no one can come after you unless we take up our cross daily and die to ourselves and live for you. God, would you daily um, remind us, teach us of who you are and what a good king you are and show us how good it is that you reign. God, we trust you. We ask you to bring wrath and judgment on all those who will not repent. But God, we ask you also that you would give us strength to be faithful, declaring your mercy to the nations, calling them to repentance, that they likewise might know the goodness of your reign over their hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.